Last week, I didn't get a chance to finish. Um, I was rushed. I wanted to make sure I get everyone out on time. So I didn't get a chance to adequately cover uh, several of my points. So I want us to re review some things, and then I want us to finish up these points on why Jesus needed to be both God and man. And I think that this will help us as we are turning to Galatians in January. Genesis chapter 3. Is everyone there? I'm going to start reading at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we thank you today for allowing us an opportunity to come again and to look at your word. I pray that you would sanctify us through your word because your word is truth, as you said the night before you were crucified. I pray that you would help us uh, to see the reason that Jesus actually came uh, and died. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we are celebrating this Christmas season and, and even looking forward to the new year when we will start looking at the book of Galatians. I pray that you would help us to understand that Jesus did not come as a baby simply because of love. He came because of sin. And he came to give his life as a ransom for us, or as Matthew said, he came to save his people from their sin. I pray, Lord, that, that we would keep these things in mind and understand that the context of Jesus' life has always been his death. 
And because of his death and resurrection, we can have eternal life. We thank you now for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said um, a, a few weeks ago, uh, Janita and I were watching TV, and as we were flipping through the channels, we saw this movie, and we only were able to catch the last 20 minutes of the movie. And because we were only able to catch the last 20 minutes of the movie, as the plot changed, pretty much we were confused. I remember looking over at Janita and said, I don't know, what the heck is going on in this movie? I'm, I'm lost, right? And we were lost because we had missed the first 40 minutes of the movie. Because we were only able to come in at the end, we missed crucial context that would have filled us in on what the movie was all about. So I think the same thing is true when it comes to the Bible. We jump in in the New Testament when we look at Jesus's birth and we misunderstand the full context of why Jesus had to come. So it's important that we start at the beginning so that we can understand why Jesus came. And I think that Genesis chapter three gives us this full context. Um, Again, I'm not going to rehash everything that I I covered last week, but I want us to see these three main points um, of Genesis chapter 3 because they are crucial in understanding what Jesus came here for, right? So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we know that God created everything, right? There was nothing but God spoke, and when God spoke, everything came into existence. And up until this point, there was no conflict with God or his word. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see this new figure, this creature who comes on the scene, who challenges God's word. God had told Adam and Eve, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that they ate, they would surely die. Now, the serpent comes on the scene and he says, basically, God is lying to you. God is trying to hold back on you. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you will become just like him. You will be God as well. And you won't really die. So we know the end of the story. (laughs) Uh, Eve, when she saw that the tree was good for food. It was desirable to make one wise. Um, And since she was already hungry, right, she took from the tree and she ate of it and she gave to Adam who ate it as well. Now, when God appears, remember, Adam and Eve, they were naked and not ashamed. They were naked but they experienced no guilt and no shame because they were not in sin. Being naked, they did not feel vulnerable. But after they sinned, when God appeared, they knew that they were naked and they knew that they were vulnerable, so they had to cover themselves to try to hide from God. Now, I'll I'll address that in a a minute on the importance of, of that when it comes to Christ. But when God shows up, he gives out curses to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. 
Here are the three curses. Number one, look in verse 16. He says, to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So God gives Eve her curse in relationship to her purpose. Her purpose was in taking care of her family and reproducing. And so that is where her pain would come from. That was her curse. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, we saw this last week that uh, here the last thing he says, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And sometimes people believe that uh, that statement means that Eve would have an overwhelming love or passion for her husband, but then her husband would rule over her. But that's not the case. We looked in Genesis 4, 7, and we saw that God says the same thing to Cain, that sin lies at the door of his heart, and its desire was for him, but he would have to master it. Same exact um, Hebrew construction. So, He's promising that there is going to be a perpetual conflict in marriage as Eve or the wife tries to take the authority of the husband. And yet the husband would have to maintain his authority. Then in when we look at verse 17 through 19, we see the curse with with uh, Adam. It says, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. For thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, Adam's curse, again, is in relationship to his purpose. He was supposed to be a provider for his family. And God tells him that in trying to provide for your family, you are going to experience frustration. Whereas you used to be able to go out and work in the field and the earth would produce abundantly for you, Now it's going to produce thorns and thistles. You're going to be frustrated as you try to provide for your family until the day you die. Now, I guess Moses couldn't anticipate, you know, a man's response because we don't experience frustration. We just sit at home now. We don't even try to provide. Lastly, we saw verses 14 through 15, and this is where we spent uh, the bulk of our time last week. Verses 14 and 15, God gives his curse to the serpent, who we know behind the the serpent is Satan. Listen to what, what he says, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this curse is what we call 
uh, the proto-euangelion, right? Don't write that down. <laughs> it simply is a Latin word that means the first example of the gospel. This is the first time we see the gospel in the Bible. God is promising that because Satan used this serpent to destroy Adam and Eve, there's going to be a perpetual conflict between the serpent and the woman and between his descendants and the descendants of the woman. And there's going to be this constant battle until a specific seed of the woman comes along and does battle directly with Satan. And in this battle, the seed of the woman is going to be injured in a minor way. But in being injured, he is going to totally crush Satan. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. We all know that uh, this is foreshadowing Jesus' death on the cross. Because Jesus uh, uh, took a minor injury on the cross when he died. But when he was resurrected, he completely destroyed the power of the enemy. Death had lost its victory. We ended up looking at Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Now, in this, in this section, and this is where I want us to, want us to focus and then move um, quickly to uh, the, the last portion of why Jesus had to be both God and man. Moses gives us a foreshadowing of what the cross was all about. He gives us a foreshadowing of what the cross was all about. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. In that verse, we see three things. These three things I gave you last week. Number one, I wanted you to see that God himself provides the atonement. Okay, again, this is setting us up for the book of Galatians. God himself provides the atonement. Adam and Eve have nothing to do with it. Adam and Eve had sinned. There was no way for them to put themselves back in a right relationship with God. Today, we try our best to put ourselves back in a right relationship with God. We believe that if we give enough money to charity, if we help enough people, if, if we are, are such good people, right, we help the old ladies across the street. <laughs> okay. If we do enough good deeds, then we can provide an atonement for ourselves. We can make ourselves right with God. But as we will see in the book of Galatians, by the works of the law or by works, no one will be justified in God's sight. Remember, Adam and Eve at this point is naked. The idea is that they are vulnerable. 
when we stand before God and every single one of us will stand before him on the day of judgment, we will all be naked and vulnerable. Our good works will mean nothing to God because by our works, no one will be justified. No one will be acquitted before God. As Paul says in Romans 3, we will all stand condemned. Now, God is the one who acts. God gets an animal and God kills an animal in their place. God acts because Adam and Eve cannot. Number two, the second thing that I wanted you to see in this passage is instead of Adam and Eve dying for their own sin, God provides a substitute to die in their place. God told Adam, the day you eat of this tree, you will die. But instead of God killing Adam and Eve because they, of their sin, right, we know that they still spiritually died, right? But bec- instead of God killing Adam and Eve, God killed an animal. He shed the animal's blood so that he did not have to shed Adam and Eve's blood. Now, isn't this what the cross is all about? Each one of us should have been the one hanging on the cross. It should have been us who had this, the one-inch thorns of crowns jammed into our skulls. It should have been us who had our beards plucked out and spit in our face and, and punched and beaten with reeds and then nailed to a cross with an eight-inch spike through our radial bones and through our feet. That should have been you. But just like in the garden, when God took an animal and substituted that animal's life for Adam and Eve's life, when Jesus went to the cross, he substituted his life for yours. So that Romans chapter 6 says that when he died, you died. And when he was resurrected, you were resurrected. So that just as he now lives a new kind of life, so you now live a new kind of life. Jesus was our substitute. Number three, notice that Adam and Eve was then clothed with the animal's skin. Right? It says that he killed the animal who made a tunic of skin and he clothed them with it. This is the same thing that the Bible says is done for us in Christ. On the day of judgment, excuse me, every single human being will stand before God. Your works will mean nothing because Paul says that every one of our works will be tried by fire. (laughs) Whatever is not good will be burnt up. Now, if it wasn't for Christ, 
all of our works will be burnt up. <laughs> okay? All of them. Okay. But there's only one thing that is going to cause you to stand on the day of judgment. And that is Christ's righteousness. Now, Jesus, before he died on the cross, he lived a perfectly righteous life. Never sinned. Never broke any of God's commandments. He was 100% righteous in every single thing he ever did. And Paul repeatedly talks about us as Christians as being in Christ. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 4, he says, for those of you who have put on Christ, the idea is that we have put on Christ like we have put on, we put on our clothes. So God has robed you in Christ's righteousness so that on the day of judgment, you will stand righteous in his presence, Ephesians chapter 1, only because you have put on Christ's righteousness the same way that he put those skin of clothes on Adam and Eve. You are righteous only because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what God is trying to tell us through Moses in Genesis chapter 3. That we are all sinners. We are all condemned because of our sin. But he is going to substitute a perfect life for our sins so that he takes our sin and puts it on his perfect son and then takes his son's perfect righteousness and puts it on us. That is what justification, what we will hear repeatedly in the Galatians, by your works no one will be justified, meaning no one will be declared righteous or acquitted of their sin. That can't come from our works. But we are justified because God takes Jesus' righteousness and places it on our account so that when he looks at us, he only sees Christ. We'll get into the more details, more details of, of, of this um, as we look in Galatians. But it, what I've been trying to reiterate to us as we have been, been transitioning into this, this book of Galatians is there is no need for us as Christians um, to walk around with low self-esteem, beating ourselves up over things that we have done in our past that we have failed on, sins that we have committed. There's no reason for us to hold on to those things because God, when he looks at us, he does not see those things. He sees us as perfectly righteous just like his son. Now, he will discipline us, Hebrews chapter 12. He will spank us when we, when we, if we continue to live in sin. He will do all of those things. But he only treats us the same way he treats Christ. And for those of us who have been, been calling and talking to me and struggling with, with this concept about can God really accept me, he has proven that once and for all time, on the cross, 
as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, you have been accepted in the beloved. Now, this is where I want us to pick up. I'm not going to go through all of the, uh, um, any of the other scriptures. I want us to look at these. I'll let you out early today. <laughs> and I'll reclaim my time, as uh, <laughs> Maxine Waters said when we pick up in Galatians. I'm reclaiming my time. That's it. Y'all be getting out early all, all December. I'm be <laughs> I'm be reclaiming my time. <laughs> okay. Now, what I wanna wanna answer is could Jesus have been an ordinary human being? Right? Now I I, I, I was I was rushed last week, but I'm gonna take my time. I got you know all the time I need to hit the hit these points. Could Jesus have been an ordinary human being and paid for our sins? Could Jesus have been a, an angel and paid for our sins? No. Now, some people believe that Jesus was only an ordinary human being, right? Um, and that we can take this a different ways. Some people believe that he was just a prophet, okay? Um, some people believe that he was born a human being and became God um, at his, either at his uh, baptism or at his resurrection. Okay. Um, some people believe that Jesus is an angel. Okay. However, Jesus had to be both 100% God and 100% man, or he could not save us. What I want to do is um, is go through several of, of um, St. Anselm's points on why Jesus had to be both God and man. Again, um, if, if you want to do some, some, some reading from, I think it was, he wrote these around 1094, you know, you can't sleep at night, pick up the book <laughs> and read it. I guarantee you, you will get some good sleep. <laughs> but let me give you his, his points. Number one, and what I'll do is I'll intersperse some of my, my thoughts in, uh, in with, with his points. His first point is, man fell from his original state, forfeited eternal blessedness, and ruined the entire race through sin. Okay. So his point is that Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were created in an original state, what we call original righteousness, some call it original holiness, but, but they had some form of perfection Whereas if they did not sin, they did not have to die. They would not have been subject to sickness and death like we are. But when they sinned, they fell from that state of grace. And now we are subject to sickness and death and suffering and pain until, as God promised Adam, the day you die. His second point, the remission of sins or the forgiveness of sins is what is, uh, as we would say, the remission of sins is necessary for fallen man to arrive at eternal blessedness. Now, many people don't take t sin seriously. They don't understand what the big deal is. They believe that we should be able to live as we want, because that was the promise of Satan. When he said to Adam and Eve, 
that you will not surely die, but God knows that the day you eat of it, you will be just like him, knowing good and evil. What he meant was you are able to decide for yourself what is good and evil. Because Adam and Eve already knew what was good and evil. They knew obeying God was good and disobeying him meant death. That's evil. But what does God have the ability to do? He has the ability to decide what is good and what is evil. And that is what Adam and Eve wanted, to decide for themselves what's right. And this is something that we as mankind are struggling with today. Can you tell me who I can love? It's all about love. As long as I love the person, it it doesn't really matter what your Bible says. I can decide for myself what is right. But Anselm says that in order for us to return to this place of being right with God, there has to be something done in order to effect forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something that just can be given, right? There must be a penalty for sin. Now, He goes on to say, in order for sin to be forgiven or remitted, satisfaction must be made. Now, Anselm's understanding is that when we sin, whenever we commit an act that it goes against God's will or in disobedience to God, what we do is rob God of his honor. God is so perfect and so holy, and as our creator, he deserves our obedience. He deserves that we recognize his lordship over everything. And when we sin, or when we do something that goes against God's will and command, we are robbing him of his right to be lord over everything. And before God can forgive sin, a satisfaction must be paid. Now, what is this satisfaction? It's the question. Now, we believe that we can make a restitutional satisfaction ourselves. So we start trying to do a bunch of good works. I come to church, I read the Bible. I pay my tithes, right? or at least I give something. <laughs> right. I, I, I help people as much as I can. I give to missions, or, or I give to when I see people hurting, or, or see someone on the street, I give, I give, I do all of these things. Or, or, or I remember hearing um, a speech by Bill O'Reilly before where he says that all of the money he collects through his website, he gives to charity so that, quote, On the day of judgment, when he stands before the deity, he will have more favor. And that's what we think. That if I could do just enough good deeds, (laughs) it'll somehow balance out 
As long as I have 51 good deeds and 49 bad deeds, God has to let me in. And that's because we don't understand the nature of sin. Our sin is an attack on an infinitely holy being. It is trying to take an infinitely holy being who deserves to be on the throne to take him off of his throne and put ourselves in his place. And when you attack an infinitely eternal being, your punishment is an infinite punishment or what we would say today in eternity in hell. Now, when we try to pay a restitution for our sin, what we have to recognize is our sin that it is so great that the only one greater than sin is God. Okay, this is his point. So when we try to do enough good deeds to put ourselves back in God's favor, we can never reach that point because we have to be able to pay God something greater than what we owe him. But the good deeds that you keep doing every day by coming to church and reading your Bible, you owe that to God anyway. So that can't count towards the restitution that you owe him. So you're always in a deficit. And that's why Paul says, by your works, by your deeds, you will never be justified in God's sight because you owe that to him anyway. I remember seeing someone on Facebook, this guy, he was bragging about how (laughs) he was buying school clothes and different things for his kids and and all of the things that he provided. And someone says, are you bragging about stuff you should be doing as a father anyway? (laughs) I mean, shouldn't you buy your kids school clothes and shouldn't you put food on the table? I mean, why do you want a a, a pat on the back for that? It's the same thing with God. Why do you think that by doing stuff that you have to do because Jesus is Lord anyway, why do you think that that is somehow going to gain you entrance into heaven? By your good works, no one will be acquitted of their sins. So we have a problem. As Anselm Anselm goes on to say, only mankind can pay the debt that they owe to God. God does not owe the debt. We owe it. But we cannot pay, so only God can pay this debt. But as Anselm says, God doesn't owe it. (laughs) We owe it, but can't pay. God does not owe the debt, but he can pay. So since only man ought to make satisfaction and only God can make satisfaction, it must be understood that only a perfectly 100% God and 100% man can pay the debt. So as a human being, Jesus 
takes our place. He can pay it because he's God. And because he's a human being, he didn't owe it, but he relates to us as in his humanity so he can pay it for us. So therefore, only a God-man can pay this debt. If Jesus was just a human being just like us, he would have been just like the high priest who had to go pay an atonement for themselves before they can make an atonement for, for others. But then Jesus would be a sinner just like us, trying to get in himself. But Jesus being 100% God, he was greater than our sin, so that his death on the cross was the only sufficient payment for our sin. Jesus could not have been a human being. He could not have been an angel. He cannot just be a prophet or a good man or someone who, who had such great God consciousness. As I've been reading so many people who talked about Jesus. He, he was a man, but he was so God conscious that he is a great example for us. I don't even understand that. What, what is God consciousness? I just... I, I, I don't get it. I don't know. <laughs> but if he was only a man, we are not saved. So when, when we celebrate Christmas, right, we have to keep in mind what Matthew said. He quotes from Isaiah and he says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. He was 100% God, and that is why he was able to pay the penalty that we owe and it satisfied his father so that all of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, when we stand before him on judgment day, he will say, not guilty. Now, I want you to turn to Galatians, and then I'm done. People looking at the clock like, what? <laughs> trust me, I will reclaim my time. <laughs> So Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, as we work our way through Galatians, we will see all of these points, and I will make specific applications um, to each one of us, because Paul, uh, he, he talks, makes very deep theological points in Galatians, and yet, he always brings it back to what is ethical, how we are supposed to live in light of, of this theology of Jesus' death on the cross. But listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, 
but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I'm not going to get into it because I'm going to spend some time looking at at this passage. But what Paul is simply trying to say is that the Galatians, they wanted to go back under the law. They wanted to to go back to feeling the need to commit works and acts to try to please God. And he says that when you understand what God did in and through his son, by sending his son, born of the woman, hearkening back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, he, he put his son under the law so that he could fulfill the law for us. And in fulfilling the law for us, if we want to bring in Romans chapter 8, because Galatians and Romans are parallel books, the ideas that Paul is, is talking about, that the works of the law are fulfilled in us by faith in Christ, so that you don't have to rely on your own good deeds in order to please God. Those things have been done for you, and worked out in your life simply by putting your faith and trust in Christ. So much so you are no longer a slave. A slave to what? Sin and the law. You're not a slave. By faith, you are already a son and daughter of God. And if you are a son and daughter of God, You are an heir with Christ, meaning that everything that belongs to him in heaven and earth already belongs to you. So that you don't have to keep beating yourself over the head about your sin and your failures and trying to figure out a way to make God happy with you. Christ did that for you already. And all you have to do is rest in his righteousness. Now, I think I need a new battery, but I'm good, we're done. What I want us to, to see is I want us to follow the progression that we have been fo- um, have been going. We have been, have looked in the book of James, and James is, 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 is looking at salvation from a different perspective than Paul. James is addressing those people who have put their trust in Christ, but they are not living a life that is worthy of Christ. And so he says, You better make sure that you have good works. (laughs) And as we have 
gone through the book of James, many people have, have come to me questioning, I, I, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I have enough good works. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember back in 1999, I did X, Y, Z, and, and I just don't know if God is going to accept me or forgive me. Not real, literally, I'm having real conversations. Sometimes these conversations with myself, too, I'm like, Lord, I done some crazy stuff. You, <laughs> you, you, you sure I can depend on this? Because some of this stuff I've done is so crazy. <laughs> and so we're progressing to move to the other side of the coin, right? Because James talks about justification by works. And Paul says, no, it's justification by faith. And so people are like, well, which one? I'm confused. What what do I need? (laughs) And you have to remember that they're talking about two different contexts. In order for you to be saved, you cannot have any good works factored into the equation because, as Isaiah said, All your righteousness is like a filthy rag. And I have explained to you what a filthy rag in Isaiah's day meant. All of your righteousness before God is nothing. He will not look at any of your good deeds in order to get you into heaven. Because, as I have quoted you from, from John Bunyan, There is enough sin in your best deeds to damn you to hell. All of your good deeds are tainted by sin. You know how I know? Because people, I watched this video the other day, this girl, she filmed herself pulling up to to the fast food window, and she said, you remember I was your Uber driver this morning, and you said you didn't have any clothes to wear for a Christmas party or something? Here, I bought this for you, and I got your gift card to buy some shoes and stuff. I did such a good deed. (laughs) Yeah, and then you just tainted your good deed because you needed to be seen doing it. Jesus says, when you do good deeds, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You you do your deeds in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I see videos of pastors rolling up in supermarkets. It's it's Thanksgiving, and we're coming in, and we're going to buy turkeys for everybody. And then tell us, how did you like us buying the turkey? Why they recording the whole conversation and, and then you put it online. See, we're doing such great deeds. By the works of the flesh, nobody will be justified because you're not doing that for God's glory. You're doing it because you want to be seen as, oh, we do so much in the community. That's about you. That's about getting people to come to your church. That's not about God. And so on Judgment Day, when you stand before God and say, well, didn't, didn't I do such great things? Matthew chapter 7. Yeah, you did. Depart from me. I don't know you. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness is based on you doing good deeds and needing to be recognized for it, 
you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a greater righteousness. And that righteousness is only the imputed righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that God imputes, or the word imputes means to put on your account. He credits you with Jesus' righteousness. That is the only way you will get into heaven. Now, some people say, oh, that's great. I don't got to do nothing. (laughs) Paul says, (laughs) shall we live in sin that grace may abound? And in 2019, they'd be like, yeah. It makes sense to me. If if God is going to let me in for free, (laughs) I might as well just have all the pleasure now and just still get into heaven. And so James says, let me talk to you for a minute. If you genuinely have the righteousness of Christ put on your account, there should be so much gratitude in your heart that you don't continue living in sin, that you don't, as the author of Hebrews says, take the blood of Jesus' sacrifice and stomp it under your feet. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you have been saved. Right? But verse 10 He's prepared you beforehand for good works so that you can walk in them. Now that you are saved by grace, God has work for you to do. And that work is out of a grateful heart that he saved you because you had no way of saving yourself. So since he did the work, now I do good works not to get saved, but to glorify my father in heaven. And if, and James's point is if you have no desire to do good works to glorify your Father who saved you out of grace, you might want to check whether or not you were really saved by grace. Because salvation will produce works. You can't get saved by works, but salvation will produce good works. Now, we can have a, a debate on how many good works, you know, like, can I, can I have like, like five grapes and like two bananas, you know, or do I have to have a whole vineyard of fruit, right? I don't, I don't, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I, I don't know what fruit he's going to produce in your life. But what I do know, he's going to produce something. Because Jesus said, if you bear no fruit, you don't belong to me. So so I I know we're wrestling with this idea of of works and salvation and things like that. So what I want us to do, starting in January, is that we're going to work our way through the book of Galatians, right? Um... And, and, and we're going to look at this idea of justification by faith. What I want us to, to see repeatedly, Paul says, it does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. Your salvation 
only depends on Christ. He chose you. He called you. He justified you. And if we bring in Romans chapter 8, all of those whom he has called and justified, he will glorify. It is a done deal. You will make it. I know several of you are wrestling with, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it. You will make it <laughs> if you have put your trust in Christ. And what I want us to see is that is Paul's whole point. Don't go back to trying to follow rules and laws to make yourself pleasing to God. That won't work. You can only stand in Christ's finished work on the cross because that is all God will look at on the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us again to come into your presence knowing that we are all guilty sinners deserving of your punishment deserving of of death in hell an eternity in hell because that is the only right punishment for those who have committed treason against the king of the universe and yet you have loved us so much that instead of sentencing us to an eternity away from you, you have provided a way that we can all be saved and stand righteous in your presence. And that is through the death of your only son, who is also God. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to recognize that none of our good works, none of our good deeds are good enough to get us into heaven, to get us into your presence. Jesus Christ is the only one that was ever good enough to merit your salvation. And now he will freely give it to all who put their trust in him. I pray, Lord, that you would Help us now that we have trusted in him. Help us not to go back to works of the law to try to prove our spiritual maturity or our spiritual growth or to make us feel that we are right with you. Because anytime we look at ourselves and our own works, we should really end up in Romans chapter 7 where Paul ends by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because all of our righteousness in your presence is like a filthy rag. Something a woman uses every 28 days and throws away. The only thing that will, will count in your presence is the righteousness of your son. And Paul says that we should 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 work we should endeavor to be found in him not having our own righteousness that comes through the law but the righteousness that only comes through faith in christ i pray that you will help us as we work our way through the book of galatians to see that jesus your life your death your resurrection is enough it is sufficient for us our good works can never count for anything compared to your works that you have done for us.
And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to rest, especially now our consciences. Help our conscience and our memory of our past sins. Help all of those things to rest in Christ. Because you have taken our sins and cast them into a sea of forgetfulness. And you have promised that you will hold those things against us no more. Help us to rest in your promises because your word is truth. We thank you now for all that you have done for us in Christ. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.